the ideal of a universal religion, how it must embrace different types of minds and methods. Wheresoever our senses reach, or whatsoever our minds imagine, we find therein the action and reaction of two forces, the one counteracting the other and causing the constant play of the mixed phenomena that we see around us and of those which we feel in our minds. In the external world, the action of these opposite forces is expressing itself as attraction and repulsion or as centripetal and centrifugal forces and in the internal as love and hatred, good and evil. We repel some things, we attract others. We are attracted by one, we are repelled by another. Many times in our lives we find that without any reason whatsoever we are as it were attracted towards certain persons. At other times, similarly, we are repelled by others. This is patent to all, and the higher the field of action, the more potent, the more remarkable are the influences of these opposite forces. Religion is the highest plane of human thought and life. And herein we find that the workings of these two forces have been most marked. The intensest love that humanity has ever known has come from religion, and the most diabolical hatred that humanity has known has also come from religion. The noblest words of peace that the world has ever heard have come from men on the religious plane and the bitterest denunciation that the world has ever known has been uttered by religious men. The higher the object of any religion and the finer its organisation, the more remarkable are its activities. No other human motive has deluged the world with blood so much as religion. At the same time, Nothing has brought into existence so many hospitals and asylums for the poor. No other human influence has taken such care not only of humanity, but also of the lowest of animals as religion has done. Nothing makes us so cruel as religion, and nothing makes us so tender as religion. This has been in the past, and will also in all probability, be so in the future. Yet out of the midst of this din and turmoil, this struggle and strife, this hatred and jealousy of religions and sects, there have arisen, from time to time, potent voices drowning all this noise, making themselves heard from pole to pole, as it were, proclaiming peace and harmony. Will it ever come? Is it possible that there should ever reign unbroken harmony in this plane of mighty religious struggle? The world is exercised in the latter part of this century by the question of harmony. In society, various plans are being proposed and attempts are made to carry them into practice. But we know how difficult it is to do so.
people find that it is almost impossible to mitigate the fury of the struggle of life, to tone down the tremendous nervous tension that is in man. Now, if it is so difficult to bring harmony and peace to the physical plane of life, the external, gross and outward side of it, then a thousand times more difficult is it to bring peace and harmony to rule over the internal nature of man. I would ask you for the time being to come out of the network of words. We have all been hearing from childhood of such things as love, peace, charity, equality and universal brotherhood. But they have become to us mere words without meaning. Words which we repeat like parrots. It has become quite natural for us to do so. We cannot help it. Great souls who first felt these great ideas in their hearts manufactured these words. And at that time many understood their meaning. Later on, ignorant people have taken up those words to play with them and make religion a mere play upon words, and not a thing to be carried into practice. It becomes my father's religion, our nation's religion, our country's religion, and so forth. It becomes only a phase of patriotism to profess any religion, and patriotism is always partial. To bring harmony into religion must always be difficult, yet we will consider this problem of the harmony of religions. We see that in every religion there are three parts. I mean in every great and recognised religion. First there is the philosophy, which presents the whole scope of that religion, setting forth its basic principles, the goal and the means of reaching it. The second part is mythology, which is philosophy made concrete. It consists of legends relating to the lives of men or of supernatural beings and so forth. It is the abstractions of philosophy concretized in the more or less imaginary lives of men and supernatural beings. The third part is the ritual. This is still more concrete and is made up of forms and ceremonies, various physical attitudes, flowers and incense, and many other things that appeal to the senses. In these consists the ritual. You will find that all recognised religions have these three elements. Some lay more stress on one, some on another. Let us now take into consideration the first part, philosophy. Is there one universal philosophy? Not yet. Each religion brings out its own doctrines and insists upon them as being the only true ones. And not only does it do that, but it thinks that he who does not believe in them must go to some horrible place. Some will even draw the sword to compel others to believe as they do. This is not through wickedness, but through a particular disease of the human brain called fanaticism. 
They are very sincere, these fanatics, the most sincere of human beings. But they are quite as irresponsible as other lunatics in the world. This disease of fanaticism is one of the most dangerous of all diseases. All the wickedness of human nature is roused by it. Anger is stirred up, nerves are strung high, and human beings become like tigers. Is there any mythological similarity? Is there any mythological harmony and universal mythology accepted by all religions? Certainly not. All religions have their own mythology. Only each of them says, My stories are not mere myths. Let us try to understand the question by illustration. I simply mean to illustrate. I do not mean criticism of any religion. The Christian believes that God took the shape of a dove and came down to earth. To him this is history and not mythology. The Hindu believes that God is manifested in the cow. Christians say that to believe so is mere mythology and not history, that it is superstition. The Jews think that if an image is made in the form of a box or a chest with an angel on either side, then it may be placed in the Holy of Holies. It is sacred to Jehovah. But if the image be made in the form of a beautiful man or woman, they say, this is a horrible idol, break it down. This is our unity in mythology. If a man stands up and says, my prophet did such and such a wonderful thing, others will say, that is only superstition. But at the same time, they say that their own prophet did still more wonderful things, which they hold to be historical. Nobody in the world, as far as I've seen, is able to make out the fine distinction between history and mythology as it exists in the brains of these persons. All such stories, to whatever religion they may belong, are really mythological, mixed up occasionally, it may be, with a little history. Next come the rituals. One sect has one particular form of ritual and thinks that that is holy, while the rituals of another sect are simply arrant superstitions. If one sect worships a peculiar sort of symbol, another sect says, oh, it is horrible. Take, for instance, a general form of symbol. The phallus symbol is certainly a sexual symbol, but gradually... That aspect of it has been forgotten and it stands now as a symbol of the Creator. Those nations which have this as their symbol never think of it as the phallus. It is just a symbol and there it ends. But a man from another race or creed sees in it nothing but the phallus and begins to condemn it. Yet at the same time he may be doing something which to the so-called phallic worshippers appears most horrible. Let me take two points for illustration. 
the phallus symbol and the sacrament of the Christians. To the Christians, the phallus is horrible and to the Hindus, the Christian sacrament is horrible. They say that the Christian sacrament, the killing of a man and the eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood to get the good qualities of that man, is cannibalism. This is what some of the savage tribes do. If a man is brave, they kill him and eat his heart, because they think that it will give them the qualities of courage and bravery possessed by that man. Even such a devout Christian as Sir John Lubbock admits this and says that the origin of this Christian symbol is in this savage idea. The Christians, of course, do not admit this view of its origin, and what it may imply never comes to their mind. It stands for holy things, and that is all they want to know. So even in rituals, there is no universal symbol which can command general recognition and acceptance. Where then is any universality? How is it possible then to have a universal form of religion? That, however, already exists, and let us see what it is. We all hear about universal brotherhood, and how societies stand up especially to preach this. I remember an old story. In India, taking wine is considered very bad. There were two brothers who wished one night to drink wine secretly, and their uncle, who was a very orthodox man, was sleeping in a room quite close to theirs. So before they began to drink, they said to each other, We must be very silent, or uncle will wake up. When they were drinking, they continued repeating to each other, Silence, uncle will wake up each trying to shout the other down. And as the shouting increased, the uncle woke up, came into the room and discovered the whole thing. Now we all shout like these drunken men, universal brotherhood. We are all equal, therefore let us make a sect. As soon as you make a sect, you protest against equality, and equality is no more. Mohammedans talk of universal brotherhood, but what comes out of that in reality? Why, anybody who is not a Mohammedan will not be admitted into the brotherhood. He will be more likely to have his throat cut. Christians talk of universal brotherhood, but anyone who is not a Christian must go to that place where he will be eternally barbecued. And so we go on in this world, in our search after universal brotherhood and equality. When you hear such talk in the world, I would ask you to be a little reticent, to take care of yourselves, for behind all this talk is often the intensest selfishness. In the winter, sometimes a thundercloud comes up, it roars and roars, but it does not rain. But in the rainy season, the clouds speak not, but deluge the world with water. 
So those who are really workers and really feel at heart the universal brotherhood of man do not talk much, do not make little sects for universal brotherhood, but their acts, their movements, their whole life show out clearly that they in truth possess the feeling of brotherhood for mankind, that they have love and sympathy for all. They do not speak, they do and they live. This world is too full of blustering talk. We want a little more earnest work and a little less talk. So far, we see that it is hard to find any universal features in regard to religion and yet we know they exist. We are all human beings, but are we all equal? Certainly not. Who says we are equal? Only the lunatic. Are we all equal in our brains, in our powers, in our bodies? One man is stronger than another. One man has more brain power than another. If we are all equal, why is there this inequality? Who made it? We. Because we have more or less powers, more or less brain, more or less physical strength, it must make a difference between us. Yet we know that the doctrine of equality appeals to our heart. We are all human beings. But some are men and some are women. Here is a black man. There is a white man, but all are men, all belong to one humanity. Various are our faces. I see no two alike, yet we are all human beings. Where is this one humanity? I find a man or a woman, either dark or fair, and among all these faces, I know that there is an abstract humanity which is common to all. I may not find it when I try to grasp it, to sense it, to actualize it, yet I know for certain that it is there. If I'm sure of anything, it is of this humanity, which is common to us all. It is through this generalized identity that I see you as a man or a woman. So it is with this universal religion which runs through all the various religions of the world in the form of God. It must and does exist through eternity. I am the thread that runs through all these pearls, and each pearl is a religion or even a sect thereof. Such are the different pearls, and the Lord is the thread that runs through all of them. Only the majority of mankind are entirely unconscious of it. Unity and variety is the plan of the universe. We are all men, and yet we are all distinct from one another. As a part of humanity, I am one with you, and as Mr. So-and-so, I am different from you. As a man, you are separate from the woman. As a human being, you are one with the woman. As a man you are separate from the animal, but as living beings, man, woman, animal and plant are all one, and as existence you are one with the whole universe. 
That universal existence is God, the ultimate unity in the universe. In him we are all one. At the same time, in manifestation, these differences must always remain. In our work, in our energies, as they are being manifested outside, these differences must always remain. We find then, that if by the idea of a universal religion, it is meant that one set of doctrines should be believed in by all mankind, it is wholly impossible. It can never be. There can never be a time when all faces will be the same. Again, if we expect that there will be one universal mythology, that is also impossible. It cannot be. Neither can there be one universal ritual. Such a state of things can never come into existence. If it ever did, the world would be destroyed, because variety is the first principle of life. What makes us formed beings? Differentiation. Perfect balance would be our destruction. Suppose the amount of heat in this room, the tendency of which is towards equal and perfect diffusion, gets that kind of diffusion. Then for all practical purposes, that heat will cease to be. What makes motion possible in this universe? Lost balance. The unity of sameness can come only when this universe is destroyed. Otherwise, such a thing is impossible. Not only so, it would be dangerous to have it. We must not wish that all of us should think alike. There would then be no thought to think. We should all be alike, as the Egyptian mummies in a museum, looking at each other without a thought to think. It is this difference, this differentiation, this losing of balance between us, which is the very soul of our progress, the soul of all our thought. This must always be. What then do I mean by the ideal of a universal religion? I do not mean any one universal philosophy, or any one universal mythology, or any one universal ritual held alike by all. For I know that this world must go on working, wheel within wheel, this intricate mass of machinery, most complex, most wonderful. What can we do then? We can make it run smoothly. We can lessen the friction. We can grease the wheels, as it were. How? By recognising the natural necessity of variation. Just as we have recognised unity by our very nature, so we must also recognise variation. We must learn that truth may be expressed in a hundred thousand ways, and that each of these ways is true as far as it goes. We must learn that the same thing can be viewed from a hundred different standpoints, and yet be the same thing. Take, for instance, the sun. Supposing a man standing on the earth looks at the sun when it rises in the morning, 
he sees a big ball. Suppose he starts on a journey towards the sun and takes a camera with him, taking photographs at every stage of his journey until he reaches the sun. The photographs of each stage will be seen to be different from those of the other stages. In fact, when he gets back, he brings with him so many photographs of so many different suns as it would appear. And yet we know that the same sun was photographed by the man at the different stages of his progress. Even so is it with the Lord, through high philosophy or low, through the most exalted mythology or the grossest, through the most refined ritualism or arrant fetishism, every sect, every soul, every nation, every religion, consciously or unconsciously, is struggling upward towards God. Every vision of truth that man has is a vision of him and of none else. Suppose we all go with vessels in our hands to fetch water from a lake. One has a cup, another a jar, another a bucket, and so forth, and we all fill our vessels. The water in each case naturally takes the form of the vessel carried by each of us. He who brought the cup has the water in the form of a cup. He who brought the jar, his water is in the shape of a jar, and so forth. But in every case, water, and nothing but water, is in the vessel. So it is in the case of religion. Our minds are like these vessels, and each one of us is trying to arrive at the realisation of God. God is like that water filling these different vessels, and in each vessel, the vision of God comes in the form of the vessel, yet he is one. He is God in every case. This is the only recognition of universality that we can get. So far, it is all right theoretically. But is there any way of practically working out this harmony in religions? We find that this recognition, that all the various views of religion are true, has been very, very old. Hundreds of attempts have been made in India, in Alexandria, in Europe, in China, in Japan, in Tibet, and lastly in America, to formulate a harmonious religious creed, to make all religions come together in love. They have all failed, because they did not adopt any practical plan. Many have admitted that all the religions of the world are right, but they show no practical way of bringing them together, so as to enable each of them to maintain its own individuality in the conflux. That plan alone is practical, which does not destroy the individuality of any man in religion, and at the same time shows him a point of union with all others. But so far, all the plans of religious harmony that have been tried, while proposing to take in all the various views of religion, have in practice 
tried to bind them all down to a few doctrines, and so have produced more new sects, fighting, struggling, and pushing against each other. I have also my little plan. I do not know whether it will work or not, and I want to present it to you for discussion. What is my plan? In the first place, I would ask mankind to recognize this maxim, do not destroy. Iconoclastic reformers do no good to the world. Break not, pull not anything down, but build. Help if you can. If you cannot, fold your hands and stand by and see things go on. Do not injure if you cannot render help. Say not a word against any man's convictions, so far as they are sincere. Secondly, take man where he stands, and from there give him a lift. If it be true that God is the centre of all religions, and that each of us is moving towards him along one of these radii, then it is certain that all of us must reach that centre. And at the centre, where all the radii meet, all our differences will cease. But until we reach there, differences there must be. All these radii converge at the same centre. One according to his nature travels along one of these lines, and another along another. And if we all push onward along our own lines, we shall surely come to the centre, because all roads lead to Rome. Each of us is naturally growing and developing according to his own nature. Each will in time come to know the highest truth, for after all, men must teach themselves. What can you and I do? Do you think you can teach even a child? You cannot. The child teaches himself. Your duty is to afford opportunities and to remove obstacles. A plant grows. Do you make the plant grow? Your duty is to put a hedge round it and see that no animal eats up the plant. And there your duty ends. The plant grows of itself. So it is in regard to the spiritual growth of every man. None can teach you. None can make a spiritual man of you. You have to teach yourself. Your growth must come from inside. What can an external teacher do? He can remove the obstructions a little, and there his duty ends. Therefore, help if you can, but do not destroy. Give up all ideas that you can make men spiritual. It is impossible. There is no other teacher to you than your own soul. Recognize this. What comes of it? In society, we see so many different natures. There are thousands and thousands of varieties of minds and inclinations. A thorough generalization of them is impossible.
but for our practical purpose it is sufficient to have them characterised into four classes. First there is the active man, the worker. He wants to work and there is tremendous energy in his muscles and his nerves. His aim is to work, to build hospitals, do charitable deeds, make streets, to plan, to organise. Then there is the emotional man, who loves the sublime and the beautiful to an excessive degree. He loves to think of the beautiful, to enjoy the aesthetic side of nature, and adore love and the God of love. He loves with his whole heart the great souls of all times, the prophets of religions and the incarnations of God on earth. He doesn't care whether reason can or cannot prove that Christ or Buddha existed. He does not care for the exact date when the Sermon on the Mount was preached or for the exact moment of Krishna's birth. What he cares for is their personalities, their lovable figures. Such is his ideal. This is the nature of the lover, the emotional man. Then there is the mystic, whose mind wants to analyse its own self, to understand the workings of the human mind, what the forces are that are working inside, and how to know, manipulate and obtain control over them. This is the mystical mind. Then there is the philosopher, who wants to weigh everything and use his intellect even beyond the possibilities of all human philosophy. Now a religion, to satisfy the largest portion of mankind, must be able to supply food for all these various types of minds, and where this capability is wanting, the existing sects all become one-sided. Suppose you go to a sect which preaches love and emotion, they sing and weep and preach love. But as soon as you say, My friend, that is all right, but I want something stronger than this, a little reason and philosophy. I want to understand things step by step and more rationally. They say, Get out. And they not only ask you to get out, but would send you to the other place if they could. The result is, that that sect can only help people of an emotional turn of mind. They not only do not help others, but try to destroy them. And the most wicked part of the whole thing is that they will not only not help others, but they do not believe in their sincerity. Again, there are philosophers who talk of the wisdom of India and the East, and use big psychological terms, fifty syllables long. But if an ordinary man like me goes to them and says, Can you tell me anything to make me spiritual? The first thing they would do would be to smile and say, Oh, you are too far below us in your reason. What can you understand about spirituality? These are high up philosophers. They simply show you the door. Then there are the mystical sect, 
who speak all sorts of things about different planes of existence, different states of mind, and what the power of the mind can do, and so on. And if you are an ordinary man and say, show me anything good that I can do, I am not much given to speculation, can you give me anything that will suit me? They will smile and say, listen to that fool, he knows nothing, his existence is for nothing. And this is going on everywhere in the world. I would like to get extreme exponents of all these different sects and shut them up in a room and photograph their beautiful derisive smiles. This is the existing condition of religion, the existing condition of things. What I want to propagate is a religion that will be equally acceptable to all minds. It must be equally philosophic, equally emotional, equally mystic, and equally conducive to action. If professors from the colleges come, scientific men and physicists, they will court reason. Let them have it as much as they want. There will be a point beyond which they will think they cannot go without breaking with reason. They will say, these ideas of God and salvation are superstitions, give them up. I say, Mr. Philosopher, this body of yours is a bigger superstition, give it up. Don't go home to dinner or to your philosophic chair. Give up the body, and if you cannot, cry quarter and sit down. For religion must be able to show how to realise the philosophy that teaches us that this world is one, that there is but one existence in the universe. Similarly, if the mystic comes, we must welcome him, be ready to give him the science of mental analysis and practically demonstrate it before him. And if emotional people come, we must sit, laugh and weep with them in the name of the Lord. We must drink the cup of love and become mad. If the energetic worker comes, we must work with him, with all the energy that we have. And this combination will be the ideal of the nearest approach to a universal religion. Would to God that all men were so constituted in their minds, that all these elements of philosophy, mysticism, emotion and of work were equally present in full. That is the ideal, my ideal of a perfect man. Everyone who has only one or two of these elements of character, I consider one-sided. And this world is almost full of such one-sided men, with knowledge of that one road only in which they move, and anything else is dangerous and horrible to them. To become harmoniously balanced in all these four directions is my ideal of religion. And this religion is attained by what we in India call yoga, union. To the worker, it is union between men and the whole of humanity. To the mystic, between his lower and higher self, 
to the lover, union between himself and the God of love, and to the philosopher, it is the union of all existence. This is what is meant by yoga. This is a Sanskrit term, and these four divisions of yoga have in Sanskrit different names. The man who seeks after this kind of union is called a yogi. The worker is called a karma yogi. He who seeks union through love is called a bhakti yogi. He who seeks it through mysticism is called the raja yogi. And he who seeks it through philosophy is called a jnana yogi. So this word yogi comprises them all. Now first of all, let me take up Raja Yoga. What is this Raja Yoga, this controlling of the mind? In this country, you're associating all sorts of hobgoblins with the word yoga, I'm afraid. Therefore, I must start by telling you that it has nothing to do with such things. No one of these yogas gives up reason. No one of them asks you to be hoodwinked or to deliver your reason into the hands of priests of any type whatsoever. No one of them asks that you should give up your allegiance to any superhuman messenger. Each one of them tells you to cling to your reason, to hold fast to it. We find in all beings three sorts of instruments of knowledge. The first is instinct, which you find most highly developed in animals. This is the lowest instrument of knowledge. What is the second instrument of knowledge? Reasoning. You find that most highly developed in man. Now in the first place, instinct is an inadequate instrument. To animals, the sphere of action is very limited, and within that limit, instinct acts. When you come to man, you see it is largely developed into reason. The sphere of action also has here become enlarged. Yet even reason is still very insufficient. Reason can go only a little way, and then it stops. It cannot go any further. And if you try to push it, the result is helpless confusion. Reason itself becomes unreasonable. Logic becomes argument in a circle. Take, for instance, the very basis of our perception, matter and force. What is matter? That which is acted upon by force. And force, that which acts upon matter. You see the complication, what the logicians call seesaw, one idea depending on the other, and this again depending on that. You find a mighty barrier before reason, beyond which reasoning cannot go. Yet it always feels impatient to get into the region of the infinite beyond. This world this universe which our senses feel, or our mind thinks, is but one atom, so to say, 
of the infinite projected onto the plane of consciousness. And within that narrow limit, defined by the network of consciousness, works our reason, and not beyond. Therefore, there must be some other instrument to take us beyond, and that instrument is called inspiration. So instinct, reason and inspiration are the three instruments of knowledge. Instinct belongs to animals, reason to man and inspiration to God-men. But in all human beings are to be found, in more or less developed condition, the germs of all these three instruments of knowledge. To have these mental instruments evolved, the germs must be there. And this also must be remembered, that one instrument is a development of the other, and therefore does not contradict it. It is reason that develops into inspiration, and therefore inspiration does not contradict reason, but fulfills it. Things which reason cannot get at are brought to light by inspiration, and they do not contradict reason. The old man does not contradict the child, but fulfills the child. Therefore, you must always bear in mind that the great danger lies in mistaking the lower forms of instrument to be the higher. Many times, instinct is presented before the world as inspiration, and then come all the spurious claims for the gift of prophecy. A fool, or a semi-lunatic, thinks that the confusion going on in his brain is inspiration, and he wants men to follow him. The most contradictory rational nonsense that has been preached in the world is simply the instinctive jargon of confused lunatic brains trying to pass for the language of inspiration. The first test of true teaching must be that the teaching should not contradict reason, and you may see that such is the basis of all these yogas. We take the Raja Yoga, the psychological yoga, the psychological way to union. It is a vast subject, and I can only point out to you now the central idea of this yoga. We have but one method of acquiring knowledge. From the lowest man to the highest yogi, all have to use the same method, and that method is what is called concentration. The chemist who works in his laboratory concentrates all the powers of his mind, brings them into one focus, and throws them on the elements and the elements stand analysed, and thus his knowledge comes. The astronomer has also concentrated the powers of his mind, and brought them into one focus, and he throws them onto the objects through his telescope, and stars and systems roll forward, and give up their secrets to him. So it is in every case, with the professor in his chair, the student with his book, every man who is working to know. 
You are hearing me, and if my words interest you, your mind will become concentrated on them. And then suppose a clock strikes, you will not hear it on account of this concentration. And the more you're able to concentrate your mind, the better you'll understand me. And the more I concentrate my love and powers, the better I shall be able to give expression to what I want to convey to you. The more this power of concentration, the more knowledge is acquired, because this is the one and only method of acquiring knowledge. Even the lowest shoe black, if he gives more concentration, will black shoes better. The cook with concentration will cook a meal all the better. In making money, or in worshipping God, or in doing anything, the stronger the power of concentration, the better will that thing be done. This is the one call, the one knock, which opens the gates of nature and lets out floods of light. This, the power of concentration, is the only key to the treasure house of knowledge. The system of Raja Yoga deals almost exclusively with this. In the present state of our body, we're so much distracted and the mind is frittering away its energies upon a hundred sorts of things. As soon as I try to calm my thoughts and concentrate my mind upon any one object of knowledge, thousands of undesired impulses rush into the brain. Thousands of thoughts rush into the mind and disturb it. How to check it and bring the mind under control is the whole subject of study in Raja Yoga. Now take Karma Yoga, the attainment of God through work. It is evident that in society there are many persons who seem to be born for some sort of activity or other whose minds cannot be concentrated on the plane of thought alone, and who have but one idea, concretized in work, visible and tangible. There must be a science for this kind of life too. Each one of us is engaged in some work, but the majority of us fritter away the greater portion of our energies because we do not know the secret of work. Karma Yoga explains this secret and teaches where and how to work, how to employ to the greatest advantage the largest part of our energies in the work that is before us. But with this secret, we must take into consideration the great objection against work, namely that it causes pain. All misery and pain come from attachment. I want to do work. I want to do good to a human being. And it is ninety to one that that human being whom I have helped will prove ungrateful and go against me. And the result to me is pain. Such things deter mankind from working and it spoils a good portion of the work and energy of mankind, this fear of pain and misery. Karma Yoga 
teaches us how to work for work's sake, unattached, without caring who is helped and what for. The karma yogi works because it is his nature, because he feels that it is good for him to do so, and that he has no object beyond that. His position in this world is that of a giver, and he never cares to receive anything. He knows that he is giving, and does not ask for anything in return, and therefore he eludes the grasp of misery. The grasp of pain, whenever it comes, is the result of the reaction of attachment. There is then the Bhakti Yoga for the man of emotional nature, the lover. He wants to love God. He relies upon and uses all sorts of rituals, flowers, incense, beautiful buildings, forms and all such things. Do you mean to say that they are wrong? One fact I must tell you. It is good for you to remember in this country especially that the world's great spiritual giants have all been produced only by those religious sects which have been in the possession of very rich mythology and ritual. All sects that have attempted to worship God without any form or ceremony have crushed without mercy everything that is beautiful and sublime in religion. Their religion is a fanaticism at best, a dry thing. The history of the world is a standing witness to this fact. Therefore, do not decry these rituals and mythologies. Let people have them. Let those who so desire have them. Do not exhibit that unworthy derisive smile and say, They are fools, let them have it. Not so. The greatest men I have seen in my life, the most wonderfully developed in spirituality, have all come through the discipline of these rituals. I do not hold myself worthy to sit at their feet, and for me to criticise them. How do I know how these ideas act upon the human mind? Which of them am I to accept and which to reject? We are apt to criticise everything in the world without sufficient warrant. Let people have all the mythology they want with its beautiful inspirations for you must always bear in mind that emotional natures do not care for abstract definitions of the truth. God to them is something tangible, the only thing that is real. They feel here and see him, and love him. Let them have their God. Your rationalist seems to them to be like a fool, who, when he saw a beautiful statue, wanted to break it to find out of what material it was made. Bhakti Yoga teaches them how to love without any ulterior motives. Loving God and loving the good because it is good to do so, not for going to heaven, nor to get children, wealth, or anything else. It teaches them that love itself is the highest recompense of love, 
The God himself is love. It teaches them to pay all kinds of tribute to God as the creator, the omnipresent, omniscient, almighty ruler, the father and the mother. The highest phrase that can express him, the highest idea that the human mind can conceive of him, is that he is the God of love. Wherever there is love, it is he. Wherever there is any love, it is he. The Lord is present there. Where the husband kisses the wife, he is there in the kiss. Where the mother kisses the child, he is there in the kiss. Where friends clasp hands, he the Lord is present as the God of love. When a great man loves and wishes to help mankind, he is there, giving freely his bounty out of his love to mankind. Wherever the heart expands, he is there manifested. This is what the Bhakti Yoga teaches. We lastly come to the Jnana Yogi, the philosopher, the thinker, he who wants to go beyond the visible. He is the man who is not satisfied with the little things of this world. His idea is to go beyond the daily routine of eating, drinking and so on. Not even the teaching of thousands of books will satisfy him. Not even all the sciences will satisfy him. At the best, they only bring this little world before him. What else will give him satisfaction? Not even myriads of systems of worlds will satisfy him. They are to him but a drop in the ocean of existence. His soul wants to go beyond all that, into the very heart of being, by seeing reality as it is, by realising it, by being it, by becoming one with that universal being. This is the philosopher. To say that God is the father or the mother, the creator of this universe, its protector and guide, is to him quite inadequate to express him. To him, God is the life of his life, the soul of his soul. God is his own self. Nothing else remains which is other than God. All the mortal parts of him become pounded by the weighty strokes of philosophy and are brushed away. What at last truly remains is God himself. Upon the same tree there are two birds, one on the top, the other below. The one on the top is calm, silent and majestic, immersed in his own glory. The one on the lower branches eating sweet and bitter fruits by turns, hopping from branch to branch, is becoming happy and miserable by turns. After a time, the lower bird eats an extraordinarily bitter fruit and gets disgusted and looks up and sees the other bird, that wondrous one of golden plumage, who eats neither sweet nor bitter fruit, who is neither happy nor miserable, but calm, self-centred, and sees nothing beyond his self. The lower bird longs for this condition, 
but soon forgets it and again begins to eat the fruit. In a little while, he eats another exceptionally bitter fruit, which makes him feel miserable, and again he looks up and tries to get nearer to the upper bird. Once more he forgets, and after a time he looks up, and so on he goes again and again, until he comes very near to the beautiful bird, and sees the reflection of light from his plumage, playing around his own body, and he feels a change, and seems to melt away. Still nearer he comes, and everything about him melts away, and at last he understands this wonderful change. The lower bird was, as it were, only the substantial-looking shadow, the reflection of the higher. He himself was in essence the upper bird all the time. This eating of fruits, sweet and bitter, this lower little bird, weeping and happy by turns, was a vain chimera, a dream. All along the real bird was there above, calm and silent, glorious and majestic, beyond grief, beyond sorrow. The upper bird is God, the Lord of this universe, and the lower bird is the human soul, eating the sweet and bitter fruits of this world. Now and then comes a heavy blow to the soul. For a time, he stops the eating and goes towards the unknown God, and a flood of light comes. He thinks that this world is a vain show. Yet again the senses drag him down, and he begins, as before, to eat the sweet and bitter fruits of the world. Again an exceptionally hard blow comes. His heart becomes open again to divine light. Thus gradually he approaches God, and as he gets nearer and nearer, he finds his old self melting away. When he has come near enough, he sees that he is no other than God, and he exclaims, He whom I have described to you as the life of this universe, as present in the atom, in suns and moons, he is the basis of our own life, the soul of our soul. Nay, thou art that. This is what this Jnana Yoga teaches. It tells man that he is essentially divine. It shows to mankind the real unity of being, and that each one of us is the Lord God himself, manifested on earth. All of us, from the lowest worm that crawls under our feet, to the highest beings to whom we look up with wonder and awe, all are manifestations of the same Lord. Lastly, it is imperative that all these various yogas should be carried out in practice. Mere theories about them will not do any good. First we have to hear about them, then we have to think about them, we have to reason the thoughts out, impress them on our minds, and we have to meditate on them, realise them, until at last they become our whole life. 
No longer will religion remain a bundle of ideas or theories, nor an intellectual ascent. It will enter into our very self. By means of intellectual ascent, we may today subscribe to many foolish things and change our minds altogether tomorrow. But true religion never changes. Religion is realisation, not talk, nor doctrine, nor theories, however beautiful they may be. It is being and becoming, not hearing or acknowledging. It is the whole soul becoming changed into what it believes. That is religion.